Hello, Campus Cronies, and welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. This episode is rated a 5. So I'm sure you're familiar with the tragedy associated with one of America's oldest and most famous road races, the Boston Marathon. On April 15th, 2013, two brothers detonated a pair of homemade bombs in the crowd of spectators watching the race, ultimately killing three people and severely injuring at least 260 others. It took law enforcement an impressive 102 hours, 102, to identify pursue, and arrest the suspects from the moment the bombs went off to the capture. But did you know that sometime around hour 80 of that pursuit, the bombing suspects went onto the campus of Massachusetts Institute of Technology, commonly known as MIT, and blatantly took another life, the life of 27-year-old MIT police officer Sean Collier. This episode is titled Bombers on the Run, murder at MIT. So without further ado, let's get started. Sean Allen Collier was born to be a police officer. That's the sentiment of his closest family and friends. You see, Sean grew up in Wilmington, Massachusetts, a small town of about 23,000 people. After graduating high school, Sean attended Salem State University, and in 2009, he earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Law enforcement had always been his dream because it was simply in his nature to not only help others, but he also frequently went above and beyond to lend a helping hand, really in whatever way or form that may be. One of Sean's professors from Salem State, Eric Mechik, told NPR that Sean was an outstanding student and just overall a great person. Mechik said, quote, He knew what he wanted to study and what he wanted to do, and he was very dedicated to the law enforcement profession, end quote. So it's no surprise that Sean landed an IT job with the police department in Somerville, Massachusetts, after he graduated from college. But of course, Sean wouldn't settle for anything less than being a police officer, and in January 2012, he finally got that opportunity when he was hired as a patrol officer for the campus of MIT, which is located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. While there, y'all, he thrived, and he quickly became one of the most well-liked and respected police officers on the force. 
The Boston Globe reported that not only was Sean a promising young officer, but he also had a natural ability to earn people's trust and build a strong rapport with the campus community. MIT Police Chief John DeFaba said, quote, In a very short period of time, it was remarkable how engaged he was with the students. End quote. And Sean truly did anything he could to help others. For example, one time he gladly helped a student move a 10-gallon fish tank full of water. And another time he drove an hour and a half out of his way to simply drop someone off. One person in the MIT community even posted to an online forum about Sean saying, quote, I am brown and a foreigner, so usually American police make me a little nervous. But I recall passing by you one time and deciding that I liked you because you looked unusually nice and trustworthy. And I kind of wanted to offer you my sour candy, but thought it would be too random. Now I wish I had done it anyway. End quote. On the night of April 18th, 2013, Sean was on duty and nearing the end of his 3 to 11.15 p.m. shift. MIT Police Chief DeFaba had ordered extra campus security in the wake of the Boston Marathon bombing that had occurred a few days earlier on April 15th. This was particularly because police had not caught the suspects of the bombings yet. By 9.30 that night, Sean was on routine patrol and parked the corner of Vassar and Main Streets on campus, which is located near Building 32, the Stata Center, and Building 76, the David H. Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research. According to the Daily Mail, this particular spot on campus was a good vantage point to see where drivers might commonly make an illegal shortcut through campus to avoid a red light. As Chief DeFaba was driving around, getting ready to wrap up his night, he pulled his patrol car next to Sean's to see how Sean was doing. He recalled that Sean told him, quote, just making sure everybody behaves, end quote. The two officers chatted for several minutes before DeFaba left Sean to his duties and pulled away. Not even half an hour later, after DeFaba arrived to his home, he received a call from his department. DeFaba told the Boston Globe, quote, it was the deputy chief. He said Sean Collier has been shot, end quote. But DeFava would soon find out that it was far worse than he could imagine. Sean had been shot five times, including twice in the head. Though he was taken to Massachusetts General Hospital, he succumbed to his injuries, and later that night, he was officially declared dead at the hospital. According to reports and video surveillance, the two bombers had snuck up behind Sean as he was sitting in his patrol car. The Boston Globe reported that police have since called it an, an assassination, an execution. DeFava said, quote, he didn't stand a chance, end quote. Now, before I can tell you how or even potentially why this happened to Sean Collier on this night... I need to rewind the clock a bit and trace the two killers' moves, specifically after they dropped their homemade bombs near the finish line of the Boston Marathon three days earlier. The bombs, two of them, twin bombs as some reports have described them, went off at approximately 2.49 p.m. on Monday, April 15th. According to the Boston Globe, law enforcement agents later determined that the homemade bombs were likely made from pressure cookers and filled with nails and ball bearings to increase the carnage. Court records document that the bombs also contained nails and other metal debris. And y'all, 
carnage they did cause. A total of three people lost their lives due to the blasts, and over 260 others were severely injured, including many who literally lost their limbs. The youngest of the three victims killed in the explosions was eight years old. He was a third grader by the name of Martin Richard, who loved his Boston Red Sox and Bruins. The other two victims were 29-year-old Crystal Campbell and a Boston University graduate student, Ling Zalu. By the end of the night on Tuesday, April 16th, investigators combing through footage of multiple surveillance cameras had found the two men who set off the bombs. According to the Boston Globe, investigators began to see a pattern among the various videos they were searching through. Their attention was specifically drawn to two men walking east along Boylston Street, the street where the finish line was located, and they continued to walk along that street for at least 12 minutes before the explosions. Apparently, they didn't seem worried about hiding their appearance either. One of them, the younger of the two, was wearing a white cap, and he even had it turned around backward, ultimately showing his full side profile to the surveillance cameras in the area. Meanwhile, the other suspect talked nonchalantly on his phone the whole time and then scarcely reacted when the first bomb went off, as if he knew it was coming. Investigators knew for certainty that these two were the suspects when they captured an image of the one in the white hat blatantly dropping a backpack on the ground and then walking away in the opposite direction. One investigator said, quote, There was a eureka moment. It was right there for you to see. It was quite clear to me we had a breakthrough in the case. End quote. So, investigators had officially found the suspects. Well, they had found their faces and even exactly what the two men did, but they couldn't actually identify the suspects because they still needed their names. At the time, law enforcement had no idea that the two men responsible for the bombs were two brothers, 26-year-old Tamerlan Sarnayev and 19-year-old Johar Sarnayev. Court documents state that the two brothers immigrated to the U.S. in the early 2000s from Chechnya, which, according to CNN, is a war-torn corner of southwestern Russia where Islamist guerrillas have been battling government forces for over a decade. Meanwhile, the two suspects, instead of fleeing the city or state, stuck around in the days following their heinous crime. Later, their incompetence would be their ultimate downfall that would lead to one of their deaths and the other's capture. Anyway, because they stuck around, police were able to go back and trace their movements once they did figure out who they were, and here's what they discovered. It appears that the brothers attempted to go about their normal daily routines— For example, police recovered a grocery receipt dated that Monday after the bombings that showed at least one of them, or potentially both of them, went to a Whole Foods grocery store in Cambridge about a half a mile from their home. Now, while little is known about the older brother's movements after the bombings, neighbors told police that he spent a lot of time inside his home taking care of his three-year-old daughter while his wife was at work. The younger brother, on the other hand, Johar, put his movements and thoughts on blast all over his Twitter account. You see, by all accounts, Johar seemed to be a typical college student. Yes, he was a college student attending the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, or for short, UMass Dartmouth. 
and he liked to play soccer and smoke weed with his friends. And, of course, like many college students, Johar was a very active Twitter user. The Boston Globe reported that just hours after the bombings, he tweeted about the tragedy, appearing to be as far removed from the events as any other college student watching through the media. One of his tweets the day of the bombing said, quote, Ain't no love in the heart of the city. Stay safe, people. End quote. Then the last message he posted to Twitter that very Monday night, or actually late Tuesday morning at 1234 a.m., but it read, quote, There are people that know the truth but stay silent, and there are people that speak the truth but we don't hear them because they're the minority, end quote. The next day, on Tuesday, April 16th, Johar went to the Junior Auto Body Shop at around 12.30 p.m., which is located in Somerville, Massachusetts. The Boston Globe reported that this business was located just a short walk away from the brothers' home on the Cambridge-Somerville line, which is located on Norfolk Street. So just as a side note, Somerville and Cambridge are very close together. So it's like part of the greater Boston area. But anyway, apparently he went there to pick up a white Mercedes Benz he had dropped off a couple weeks earlier. He said the car belonged to his girlfriend, though I have no idea if that is true or not. However, the mechanic thought this was odd because, y'all, the car wasn't even ready to be picked up yet. The rear bumper wasn't fixed. The mechanic told investigators that Johar said he would take it anyway because he needed it right then. Also, the mechanic said that Johar usually seemed relaxed and happy, but the day he picked up the car, he appeared quite anxious. He was biting his nails and his knees shook so bad that the mechanic thought maybe Johar had been popping pills. By Tuesday afternoon, so the following day after the bombings, Johar was back on the campus of UMass Dartmouth. The Boston Globe reported that records of his ID card being swiped, as well as surveillance footage and interviews with students, show that the 19-year-old sophomore spent time on campus between Tuesday and Thursday of that week. For example, at 9.05 p.m. on Tuesday, he had used his ID card to enter the fitness center on campus, and outside the fitness center, Johar showed up for about 5 to 10 seconds on a security camera. In addition, on Tuesday, Johar continued to post to Twitter. In one post, he included a photo of a bombing victim. According to the Boston Globe, internet rumors were going around about the woman in the photo, claiming that her boyfriend was planning to propose, but he had found her dead. Johar tweeted, quote, fake story, end quote. Then he proceeded to post lyrics to a song by rapper Eminem, saying, quote, Nowadays, everybody want to talk like they got something to say, but nothing comes out when they move their lips. Just a bunch of gibberish, end quote. Okay, y'all, I'm not going to (laughs) lie. That was really hard for me to get through without totally singing that into the microphone. But I digress. (laughs) Anyway, moving on. So after midnight, technically on Wednesday, April 17th, Johar also tweeted, quote, I'm a stress-free kind of guy, end quote. Later during the day on Wednesday, Johar retweeted a message from a Saudi scholar by the name of Mufti Ismail Mink. The tweet said, quote, Attitude can take away your beauty no matter how good-looking you are, or it could enhance your beauty, making you adorable, end quote. 
that tweet would ultimately be his final post to Twitter before he was arrested. The following day, on Thursday, April 18th, Johar would also use his campus ID card for the last time. At 4.02 p.m., he used his swipe card to enter his dorm. According to the Boston Globe, at that point, he only had one more hour of anonymity left before police would be on his trail. You see, while Johar was living his best life, tweeting cryptic whatever messages and trying to be a normal college student, and while his brother was doing God knows what and hiding inside his house, law enforcement, numerous agencies, were working nonstop around the clock to figure out exactly who these assholes were. And I know what you're thinking. They must have found out from the still images and then used facial recognition technology. But you see, it wasn't quite that simple. It took them a few days because most of the images they had when zoomed in on the faces were far too grainy to make an identification through the facial recognition software. Plus, the older brother, Tomerlin, was wearing sunglasses and the cameras didn't look at their faces head on. For instance, not like a mugshot would. Finally, though, on Wednesday, April 17th, investigators found an image clear enough to at least show the public. But their dilemma was deciding whether or not to actually release the images publicly. The wrong move, after all, could be fatal. On one hand, a quick identification from a tipster could be all they needed to close in on these dudes. But on the other hand, it could alert the suspects that they were indeed on law enforcement's radar. State Police Chief Timothy Albin said, quote, There is a huge conundrum here that if you release the photos, if they haven't fled the Boston area, they are going to flee. You would always prefer to identify them yourself. You always want to apprehend someone when you have control of the situation, not when someone has been tipped you're coming through the door. End quote. Ultimately, though, it was the FBI's call because the feds had taken the lead in the investigation. And ultimately, the FBI announced at 2.50 p.m. on Thursday, April 18th, that they would hold a press conference at 5 p.m., which is when they decided to release the photos. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. At the press conference, the FBI agent in charge, Richard DeLaurier, told the nation, quote, For more than 100 years, the FBI has relied on the public to be its eyes and ears. With the media's help, in an instant, these images will be delivered directly into the hands of millions around the world. We know the public will play a critical role in identifying and locating them. 
Somebody out there knows these individuals as friends, neighbors, coworkers, or family members of the suspects. Though it may be difficult, the nation is counting on those with information to come forward. No bit of information, no matter how small or seemingly inconsequential, is too small. Each piece moves us forward towards justice. End quote. And guess what? The plan worked and tips of the two brothers' identities quickly began pouring in. For example, Pamela Roland, a student at UMass Dartmouth, came home from class and turned on her TV. As the bombing suspects' faces flashed across the screen, one of them looked faintly like a student she knew on campus. She told the Boston Globe, quote, We made a joke, like, that could be Johar, but then we thought it just couldn't be him. Johar? Never. End quote. Another person, one of Johar's Twitter followers, even sent him a screenshot of his image from the FBI pictures and posted, quote, Is this you? I didn't know you went to the marathon. End quote. So, needless to say, police were able to identify the two brothers relatively quickly after they released the photos. Here's the thing, though. Exactly what police thought would happen, you know, the two suspects realizing their identity was discovered and then attempting to flee, well, it did happen. But thankfully, the brothers were kind of dumb (laughs) and not prepared at all. The Boston Globe reported that not only did they not have a getaway car, but they were also short on weapons. They had one handgun and a BB gun between them, although I will say that they also did have some more homemade bombs with them as well. So, although police are not 100% sure of exactly what led the suspects to the campus of MIT that night on Thursday, April 18th, it could be because they were trying to steal a weapon you know, so they could have more, which ultimately led them to kill Sean Collier. According to court records, the two brothers began approaching Sean from behind as he sat unassumingly in his car. With their handgun, they shot him those five times and attempted to take his weapon. However, they did not take the weapon because, again, the dummies couldn't figure out how to unlock it. MIT Police Chief DeFaba said, quote, The retention holster does its job well, so perhaps they didn't get the gun because of that holster. Maybe that's what thwarted them from getting the gun because the gun was not removed from the holster, end quote. Regardless, the suspects continued moving and they used what had just happened with Sean as leverage to intimidate their next victim. That night, around 11 p.m., the brothers approached a 2013 black Mercedes-Benz SUV that was parked by a curb. Inside was a man, a graduate student, named Danny, who had pulled to the side of the road to answer a text message. According to the Boston Globe, the brothers swerved behind Danny's SUV in an old sedan and lurched to a stop. Tamerlan got out of the car and approached Danny's vehicle. He tapped on the window and Danny lowered it. On the other side, Tamerlan reached his arm through the window, unlocked the door, climbed inside, and pointed his handgun at Danny. He said, quote, I just killed a policeman in Cambridge. You know about the Boston Marathon bombing? I did that. Don't be stupid. End quote. The next part of the timeline gets a little blurry, but basically, for the next 75 minutes, the brothers forced Danny to drive around the greater Boston area, around Brighton, Watertown, and Cambridge. 
Now, at first, Tamerlan was the only one in Danny's vehicle with him because Johar was following them in his green Honda Civic. But at some point, Tamerlan instructed Danny to pull over so they could ditch Johar's car and all load up into the stolen SUV. The Boston Globe reported that they wanted more cash than the $45 that Danny had on him, and they talked about driving to New York. Danny, meanwhile, feared they would kill him if he made one wrong move, but how and if he could escape continuously ran through his mind. At some point, though it's not clear, they stopped on the side of the road and switched drivers. Tamerlan instructed Danny to get into the front passenger seat. Tamerlan took the driver's seat, and then Johar got in the back. According to the Boston Globe, at one point, Danny asked Tamerlan if he was going to hurt him. Tamerlan replied, quote, I'm not going to hurt you. We're just going to drop you off. Probably you'll have to walk four or five miles to find anybody, and if you're lucky, somebody will pick you up, end quote. Next, the suspect stopped in front of a Bank of America ATM, and they used Danny's bank card to withdraw $800. At that point, Danny debated making a run for it when they stopped, but ultimately decided it wasn't the right time. Just then, Danny received a text from his roommate, which was just before midnight. Tamerlan, of course, demanded to know who was texting him and what they were saying. Tamerlan then grabbed Danny's phone, but Danny, you see, was Chinese-American, and the text was in Mandarin. Tamerlan used an English-to-Mandarin app to text a response, trying to say that Danny was sick and sleeping at a friend's house for the night. The message, however, was riddled with grammatical errors, which clearly alarmed Danny's roommate. Seconds later, Danny received a call, and Tamerlan became furious. He took out his handgun, pointed it at Danny, and said, quote, Answer it. If you say a single word in Chinese, I will kill you right now. End quote. Where are you? The roommate asked Danny in Mandarin. Danny replied in English, I'm going to sleep in my friend's place tonight. I'm sorry I have to go. Tamerlan then congratulated him on a job well done and then continued driving, ultimately turning into a shell gas station to fuel up the SUV. Then, while Tamerlan was outside pumping gas, and while Johar went inside to pay for the gas with Danny's credit card, Danny realized it was a critical moment. The doors were unlocked, the gun was tucked in the driver's side door, and Tamerlan was distracted, messing with the GPS device that he had brought with him. Danny told the Boston Globe, quote, I was thinking I must do two things, unfasten my seatbelt and open the door and jump out as quick as I can. If I didn't make it, he would kill me right out. He would kill me right away, end quote. But in that moment, Danny made a split-second decision to run for his life. He opened the door and bolted away as fast as he could, the whole time running behind the SUV at an angle to avoid potential gunshots, and he darted across the street to another gas station to call 911. Now, police had a vehicle to look for, and they knew more of what they were dealing with. The only good thing about the brothers stealing Danny's vehicle was that the GPS on it emitted traceable electronic signals, which showed police where the vehicle was headed. Luckily, the brothers were nowhere near NYC. Instead, they were still in the Boston area. In fact, they headed back to Johar's green Honda that they had ditched earlier. 
But as police closed in on them, each brother emerged from each of the vehicles, one from the stolen SUV and one from the green Honda, and they began shooting at the police. Actually, while one was shooting with a handgun, the other one was tossing bombs at them. The two sides, the brothers and the police, fired more than 250 bullets, but the brothers, like I said, also began hurling homemade bombs at law enforcement. The police yelled at the brothers, Give up. There's no way out. Give up. But Tamerlan shouted back, You want more? I give you more. The street literally looked like it was in the middle of a combat zone. And y'all are about to be completely shocked and disturbed by what happened next. Tamerlan ran out of ammunition. Tamerlan was the older brother. So he chunked his weapon at a police officer, hitting him in the arm. Tamerlan then tried to run but two officers were right behind him and tackled him to the ground. While they were trying to put handcuffs on him, the younger brother, Johar, jumped into the stolen SUV and started driving straight toward the officers and his own brother. The police officers, still on the ground with Tamerlan, were able to roll away just in time. But y'all, Johar freaking ran over his own brother with a very sickening thump. He then continued driving and dragged his own brother under the SUV for about 30 feet. One man who was watching it all go down from his home said, quote, I could see the SUV headlights go up and down when he drove over his brother, end quote. Y'all, this story is stressing me out as I'm telling you. But somehow, in the midst of the chaos and literally killing his own brother, Johar was able to maneuver the SUV through the police cruisers that were blocking the way, and he sped off down the street at 12.48 a.m. Actually, court records state that Johar rammed a police cruiser in order to escape. However, he was severely wounded, and he didn't get far before he abandoned the SUV about a half a mile away and then took off on foot. By now, it was Friday, April 19th, 2013. And law enforcement was not far behind Johar. They were on his trail. They began scouring through city streets, going home by home, room by room, on the hunt for Johar. One Boston area resident who watched it all unfold from her home said, quote, They had SWAT teams, dogs, and the National Guard going through backyards and checking basements and garages, end quote. By 6 a.m. on Friday morning, the governor of Massachusetts had made a decision for all Boston area residents to shelter in place until they were able to locate Johar Sarnayev. State Police Chief Timothy Albin said, quote, We are going to start going house to house on every single street. This is something that is easier said than done. We're going to knock on every person's door and hope to have a conversation and ask to go into the house. End quote. But... By 5 p.m. that evening, Johar was still at large and law enforcement and military members were becoming incredibly weary. They were even living off bottled water and granola bars, occasionally searching for the nearest restroom, but only if people in their homes would actually allow them to use their restrooms. By 6 p.m., the governor decided to lift the shelter-in-place order, but he advised everyone to remain vigilant. And vigilant is exactly what homeowner David Henneberry was being. As he stepped outside that evening to take advantage of the relaxed civil alert from the governor, he noticed the straps on his boat weren't quite right. 
You see, he was meticulous when it came to his boat, and he knew that that is not how he left those straps. When he looked closer, and when he climbed up the ladder to peek inside his boat, all he saw was blood. A lot of blood. But then he saw a person. He quickly dialed 911, and within a few minutes, SWAT team members were at the home. Y'all, the person inside was Johar. He was still alive, but badly injured. Ultimately, he was found less than a fourth of a mile from where he abandoned the stolen SUV. But it was finally over. But y'all, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you what Johar left behind in that boat. According to court records, while Johar had been hiding inside the boat, tucked away, he carved the words, stop killing our innocent people and we will stop into the planking. In addition, he also wrote a kind of manifesto in pencil on the bulkhead of the boat's cockpit, where he basically tried to justify his actions and he welcomed his expected death. Yeah. Anyway. Johar went to trial on March 4th, 2015. According to court documents, it was revealed that both Johar and his brother had been downloading and reading Al-Qaeda propaganda for several years before the bombings. By December 2012, they had begun studying an Al-Qaeda guide to bomb making. Upon conclusion of the trial, a jury found him guilty of 30 federal terrorism-related crimes and recommended the death penalty for at least six of them. So, he did receive the death penalty, but in July 2020, NPR reported that the U.S. Court of Appeals, based in Boston, overturned his death sentences. According to NPR, the question of the case wasn't Johar's guilt. Rather, it was whether or not he was properly sentenced to death and had a fair trial. You see, according to court documentation, the appellate court noted that the trial judge had failed to impanel an impartial jury. I mean, his case was all over the media, and I can't imagine how hard it was to find people to serve on the jury and not be impartial. However, this year, in March 2022, NBC News reported that the Supreme Court reimposed his death sentence and reversed the previous federal appeals court ruling. By a 6-3 vote, the court rejected defense claims that the judge at his initial trial in 2015 improperly restricted the questioning of prospective jurors. And now, not only will Johar Sarnayev spend the rest of his miserable life behind bars, but he'll die there too, at the hands of the American justice system. Now, y'all know I do not like to end my episodes talking about the perpetrators. I like to focus on the victims because they are the ones who deserve justice, who deserve their stories to be told. So I want to circle back around to Officer Sean Collier, whom this episode is about, whom this episode is dedicated to, who died in the line of duty. The most heartbreaking part is that he was just truly an amazing human. One student, sophomore Jennifer Plotkin, said, quote, I met Sean just a week ago. After the events at the marathon on Monday, Sean Facebook messaged me to tell me that he was glad I was okay. He was extremely kind, caring, and a joy to be around. End quote. After Sean's death, even the MIT president, L. Raphael Reef, said, quote, The loss of Officer Collier is deeply painful to the entire MIT community. 
Our thoughts today are with his family, his friends, his colleagues on the police force, and by all accounts, the many other members of our community who knew him. This is a senseless and tragic loss, end quote. Also, remember how I said his dream was to become a police officer? Well, yes, he was technically living that dream on the force at MIT, but y'all, he had just recently found out that he was being hired as a police officer with the Somerville Police Department, you know, where he had originally worked as an IT guy, and he could not be more ecstatic about the opportunity. He was supposed to start there in June 2013, just two months away from when he was killed. MIT Police Chief DeFava said, quote, he came to see me a couple of months ago and he said, Chief, I have a chance to get on the Somerville police. I said, Sean, you owe me nothing. You've done a fine job for me. I would never stand in the way of someone trying to do better for themselves. End quote. Well, according to multiple sources, Sean was posthumously appointed as a police officer with the Somerville Police Department to honor his sacrifice. And now, I officially want to close this episode with some words from Sean's family who said, quote, Our only solace is that Sean died bravely doing what he committed his life to, serving and protecting others, end quote. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 35. But before I go, <laughs> again, I just want to ask you, my awesome listeners, to rate and review Campus Crime Chronicles on Apple Podcasts, or even just simply share it with your friends and tell others that this podcast exists. <laughs> I really just need y'all's help to help me get the word out and, you know, help me grow. And as always, be sure to check out my social media where I post photos associated with each episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. And be sure to keep checking out my TikTok for some additional Campus Crime stories. Okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. The cover art and logos for this podcast were designed by Brady Burns. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.